Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 16, DNA Matters. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created specifically for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are definitely mine. DNA played a relatively small part in the original investigation and trial of Max Seeker. And that's because there was no significant DNA found. But what if the DNA is just waiting to be found? Perhaps DNA can play a much bigger role in the Singh murders. I decided to contact Hedley Thomas. Hedley encountered significant DNA problems during his investigation of the Shandy Blackburn murder, detailed in his podcast Shandy's Story. He then encountered problems with Queensland Health and found them very uncooperative when he attempted to raise the matters with them. For those of you who are not aware of his background, Headley is the Australian newspaper National Chief Correspondent, specialising in investigative reporting with an interest in legal issues, the judiciary, corruption and politics. Headley has won seven Walkley Awards, which are presented in Australia to recognise excellence in journalism. As I told Headley, and I'm not ashamed to tell you, I aspire to his level of investigative podcasting, but I still have some way to go. Headley's standout podcasts are The Teacher's Pet, The Night Driver and Shandy's Story. The Teacher's Pet has been removed from podcast platforms in Australia because the podcast led to a murder charge being laid and the matter is now before the courts. My overseas listeners should be able to access it. At last count, it had 28 million downloads. The other two podcasts are available and I do not hesitate to recommend them. I feel sorry for the detective sergeant caught up in the middle of the night driver. His life and his career were destroyed by rumour and gossip. Literally. I recently caught up with Headley. Headley, thank you very much for your time today. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, mate. I really appreciate it. Maybe we could start by you telling my listeners or giving them some background into Shandy's murder and what led you to the issue of the DNA? Yeah, sure. Shandy uh, was 
uh, walking home from work uh, on a Friday evening. She worked in a coffee shop in Mackay and it was shortly after midnight and we know the exact time that she's walking home because there's CCTV footage of her. Uh, as she's um, strolling along, she sends a text message to her boyfriend saying that she's finished and she's um, just strolling along unaware of anything um, potentially uh, uh, endangering her. And then we see a figure running towards her across a road. That figure would have met up with her as she turned a corner, and we don't see what happens around the corner. But within a very short time, and after 23 very serious stab wounds, Shandy's dying in um, this uh, gutter of a road near her home in Mackay, and... Uh, we see the figure that had run towards her at a quarter past midnight running back across the road to where it's believed his car was parked, despite um, some very desperate efforts by uh, bystanders and then paramedics to save Shandy. She's um, murdered. Um, and her then boyfriend... Um, was quickly ruled out, but her ex-boyfriend became a person of um, suspicion for police. Uh, they had a very strained and uh, volatile relationship, and uh, this is evidence from hundreds and hundreds of text messages and emails that are downloaded from Shandy's iPhone, which the police recovered near her body. And... One of the reasons I got interested in the DNA in this case was because it became a very significant issue during the trial. Um, Shandy's ex-boyfriend, the one with whom she'd had that volatile relationship, was eventually charged and prosecuted over Shandy's murder. He pleaded not guilty. He said that he'd done nothing wrong. He didn't even know that she'd returned to Mackay from the Gold Coast where she'd been living for a while after they'd split up. Uh, and his defence team mounted a very powerful uh, argument that the real killer was a local criminal called William Daniel, who was a dealer of ice, um, who took ice, and uh, who was um, out that night. And and they argued that the, the defence argued that the police had caught the wrong guy, and they used they relied on a partial. Uh, DNA sample taken from uh, Shandy's clothing to say that William Daniel could have been her killer or was her killer, but it was a partial DNA, and as many of you listeners probably know, Graham, it wouldn't even be allowed to be used against an accused because the odds are sort of pretty tenuous. But in Shandy's case, it was... Um, relied upon by the defence to say, here's the real killer. And and so I wanted to understand from a DNA expert exactly what, you know, partial DNA profiles meant in terms of possible probative value and, and whether they could, whether this could be relied upon, whether this was a pointer to William Daniel being Shandy's killer or whether her ex-boyfriend, the accused, John Peros, and his defence were really running a pretty tenuous argument there. 
and uh, that's why I reached out to the DNA scientist, Dr. Kirsty Wright, and, and she became a very significant part of the podcast. Mm. I know the Queensland government have been ignoring is probably one word. Would you say they've been ignoring requests to look at this or would oh, you go further? Uh, I think there's two levels to it. So um, the Queensland um, government, the health minister uh, and the attorney general were both um, of the view that the evidence in Shandy's case, the DNA evidence, which um, Dr. Kersey Wright borrowed into and and, um, speaks about a lot in, in the episodes, they were of the view that that evidence should be revisited by the coroner, that it should be the subject of reinvestigation by the coroner. And so to that extent, it's not right to say that the government's been ignoring it. You know, they spoke about that okay. in Parliament. But I think in terms of the wider issues and the concerns that many victims of crime are being compromised in their in their efforts to get justice because of the operations and the standards and practices of the DNA laboratory identified by Kirsty Wright, I think that the government has been very reluctant, unwilling to open up a proper review, investigation, inquiry, whatever you want to call it, into that. I mean, Shandy was murdered in 2013 and the DNA laboratory's work unfolded through 2013 and 2014 and the trial was held in 2017. What Dr Kersey Wright has found is that these issues relating to the DNA laboratory's handling of samples and, and of exhibits have continued. Some of these issues have certainly continued through 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way up to you know, quite recently, perhaps even the present. And and that will be affecting, in um, Dr. Wright's opinion, um, many hundreds of cases where offenders are literally getting um, a get-out-of-jail-free card, where um, victims are not seeing the accused put away, and where, you know, many DNA profiles that should be detected are not being detected by the scientists in that laboratory. Mm, mm. Did you find um, Queensland Health were um, helpful, cooperative, when you were seeking the data, or did you already have it? I already had the data, thankfully. Right. So I had a very fortunate break there in insofar as um, many hundreds of pages of evidence from the police files from the brief of evidence that went into trial and also that went before the coroner were made available to me. So we had a huge advantage in that regard and I didn't need to rely on Queensland Health to provide me with that kind of material. But I suspect that if I had needed to rely on Queensland Health, they would have been extremely uncooperative because they were extremely uncooperative when I went to them uh, late last year, seeking a briefing, seeking answers to written questions, and um, their response was contemptible. I mean, they just gave no 
um, respect to the victims of crime, to the public's um, genuine interest and concern in how this um, government-run laboratory, which is a pretty significant pillar in the criminal justice system, it was unwilling to answer even some of the most basic questions and tried to, I think, wrap, uh, roll itself up into a small ball to become the tiniest possible target. I think that um, the ongoing failure of Queensland Health and the Queensland Health Minister, Yvette Darth, to actually respond to these legitimate concerns is um, unforgivable. Mm. Well, as I mentioned to my listeners and, and the reason I contacted you, Jeff Johnson, who's the solicitor for Max Seeker, he approached Queensland Health in February 2019 seeking the DNA data so that he could get it reviewed. And they came back with this comment, oh, we're seeking legal advice. And two years later, he's still to hear from them. Yeah, well, I, I don't know why it would be taking that long, and I suspect that he should have them uh, subjected to you know, a legal action or a judicial review or some kind of formal process so that they have to deliver that. I mean... You know, he has a he has a client in Max Seeker whose um, interests are presumably going to be served by having access to the forensic files relating to his own conviction. He should be entitled to it. Well, I don't know why it wasn't part of the original brief of evidence when he was prosecuted and convicted of murder. Do you, do you know where it got to then? No, I don't. There wasn't much focus on the DNA evidence at trial. It's only come out... Since trial, Jeff Johnson looked at some inconsistencies, I guess, in the uh, DNA. And then I was listening to you on uh, Shandy's story and I thought, "Mm, maybe I should look at the DNA in the um, Seeker case, which, to be honest, I'd never even considered. The main focus in the Seeker case is the garden fork or the alleged murder weapon. And there's some real problems with the DNA evidence in relation to that and obviously Jeff Johnson he saw that and that's why he approached uh, Queensland Health for the records but the actual physical test results they are in the file where the scientist says I examined this uh, specimen and I found that it, it was had a DNA profile or it did not have a DNA profile or in most cases it had an incomplete DNA profile or insufficient to obtain a result. Jeff actually wanted the test results so that he could get a, a scientist to review it because there was a, on the garden fork, on the handle and on the stem, there was an incomplete DNA. The fork evidence is quite significant in the uh, Seeker case. The fork was found hidden in the garage and the crown case was that Max Seeker would have been the only one who knew that it was there because it was in such an obscure place that a random killer would never have found it. And I don't think a random killer would have ever found it. It was parked up behind a barbecue. It is quite significant. Well, I think the case files uh, in these cases, that, that is the files which are the workings of the DNA scientists, um, mm would be potentially very illuminating for... Those files are definitely not in the file um, that Jeff Johnson has because he would have sent it to me if he had it. 
and obviously wouldn't have needed to seek it from Queensland Health. But given given their resistance to him, their resistance to you, I think it's going to be a hard fight to um, to get them. I mean, Graham, one of, one of the problems with DNA evidence and with the way DNA evidence is presented in courtrooms is that judges, prosecutors and defence lawyers often do a poor job of explaining what it means and... Uh, as a result, jurors receive a very unsatisfactory presentation of its potential significance and what it means. Mm. And this is borne out in a paper that was written by Dr. Kirsty Wright and two of her scientific colleagues. In fact, it's how I found her. Um, she wrote a paper just a few years ago about courtroom evidence and DNA and how gaps in the um, proper understanding and and then explanation of some technical aspects of DNA um, are contributing to cases that uh, are being effectively misled in terms of the DNA or scientific evidence. And, and I found Dr. Kirsty Wright as a result of wanting to try to find a Queensland DNA expert using that well-worn investigative tool called Google and tying um, DNA courtroom experts and finding this scientific uh, paper, this peer-reviewed paper mm. she wrote, and then contacting her. And I can send you the paper. It's a very interesting study of, of how lawyers are often very poor at properly, accurately summarising DNA evidence. And it takes an expert, it takes a scientist to be able to review, again, this kind of material. And I think one of the reasons police and prosecutors and the public can get this so wrong is because DNA does come across as the sort of magic bullet. You know, so oh, absolutely. Yeah. So... so as soon as the prosecutor says, oh, well, we've got DNA evidence, or the mm. defence says, oh, there's a partial DNA profile, and it's mm. a partial profile of this person who isn't the accused, that can have a very powerful impact upon jurors because it's almost like you mentioned DNA and everyone goes, oh, open and shut, you know, case. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to say to you, people look upon it as a magic bullet. I think there's these TV shows where, you know, in one hour they solve it and based on DNA and so people go, oh, yeah, DNA, it's fine. Well, then yeah, it's open and shut. You can only shudder at the consequences then when a DNA laboratory is making mm. fundamental errors because of a culture or a practice which is not industry standard and... You can see how, in a situation like that, mm. uh, it would be hard for lay people. We've got an investigative background, but but I've got no DNA exposure, or actually very little DNA exposure. I did look at the DNA in the Holland case as well, but I, I don't have a lot of exposure to it. But the jury, with very limited exposure to all these sort of things, I, I just don't know how they even deal with it. Mm. Very difficult. Mm. So take someone 
um, like the Dr. Percy Wright, to come along afterwards and then have the time uh, to really burrow into the material and highlight all the problems. But even when that's done and done repeatedly and publicly, the Queensland Health um, powers of B don't want to address it. I mean, what's really striking is that since Kirsty started talking to me and in the podcast and elsewhere about these issues that she discovered in Shandy's case, but also in other, she suggested it would be in many other cases because it was a practice that was ongoing. Nobody from Queensland Health or the Queensland Health Minister's office or the Police Commissioner's office or or anywhere, nobody has said she's actually wrong on that point and this point and that point. Oh, she, really? She's been very... No, nobody has said she's got anything at all incorrect. They're just not wanting to talk about it. Mm, mm. You mentioned in Shady's story the four levels of DNA testing, one, two, three, and four, mm. and that a lot had only got to number two. Mm. In the paperwork in the Seeker cases, there's absolutely, in, in the statements from the, the scientists who did the DNA testing, there's there's no comment at all about the level of testing. So that must be contained in the actual workings of their documents. Yes. Because... In the Seeker case, there is over 60 profiles that they found that are incomplete or insufficient to find a profile. That's really interesting. And the, and the, the unknown there is what stage did they get to before some... Exactly. exactly. Yeah, well, that's why I raised it with you because there's over 60 specimens where there is DNA available, but it's insufficient to obtain a profile. So I guess I'm wondering, and I think Jeff Johnson's probably wondering the same thing, is what level did they do? And if they did further testing, would it be possible that a profile would be returned, which would have a significant impact on the case? Hmm. Look, I, I, and I don't know anything about Max Seeker's case other than what yeah. Part of what I've heard in your podcast, Graham. Max Seeker's um, alleged crimes, though, I think were occurring in around 2002. Is that right? 2003. 2003, sorry. And to my knowledge, the, the major issues in this laboratory are believed to be from a bit later than that. However, you know, I don't want to be too precise on it. I can't be. Obviously, it's possible that some of the problems that Kirsty's uncovering from Shandy's case in 2013 could have also been very relevant in 2003. And we'll, we'll, you'll probably not know until you've got that material independently reviewed. Well, I know there was a change of scientists in the Seeker case. Initially, one scientist did the reviews or, or did the testing in 2004 and then he left Queensland Health in 2008 and another scientist came on board and he did further testing and he signed off on the review and the peer testing and the statements in 2011. So it's it's not clear by the statements as to when the testing was actually done but it looks like some was done in 2004, some was done in 2009, 2010. 
So, mm, a big comparison. Why was it done again? Well, I think some testing was done in 2004, but not all. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And I think after that, they delivered, police delivered more samples to Queensland Health after 2004. But when was he convicted? When was he convicted? Hmm. 2012. And from your so reading of the case, what was the significance or not of the DNA evidence in terms of having him convicted? Well, none. Zero. Some samples of Max's DNA, for instance, on cigarette butts, they were found in the garage and then outside where he and Nilma, one of the victims, used to smoke cigarettes. His DNA was found on her bed. He used to visit her. DNA was found on a TV and a video which he installed in the house at their request. Technically, the DNA was of no value to the Crown or to the defence in the trial, but there are these outstanding DNA profiles that may be of value, obviously to both sides, if further testing was done. For instance, if his uh, DNA was found on the garden fork or not, or someone else's DNA was found on the garden fork, that too would be significant. There's other issues as well. There's a whole heap of foot impressions found in the house, Headley, that had been soaked in bleach and left impressions. How the, the bleach came to be in the house is a significant part of the case. Downstairs, there was a one-metre square area that was mopped with bleach. And, of course, you've got to ask yourself the question, why was that mopped with bleach? And, you know, the most likely answer was to destroy um, biological material. But in doing so, the offender got the bleach on his socks and then walked up the stairs, leaving impressions. And it was a crown case that Max Seeker could not be excluded from making those impressions. Jury probably accepted was, well, then he probably did make them because he can't be excluded. But I made the point actually in the last episode that the upstairs of the house was like your real horror scene movie. No attempt had been made at all to clean up any area in the upstairs of the house. The murders happened in three bedrooms, and so no attempt had been made to clean the scene, yet downstairs the offender has gone to the trouble of mopping a one-metre-square tiled area. Yeah. I mean, if the offender had um, cut himself... Uh, and bled in that area, or if he had sneezed, for example, and um, that had led to, you know, a venting of, of, of his DNA, that might, you know, cause you to say, okay, well, I don't want to leave this stuff around. True. It would have to be something like that because two days later, Max Seeker was examined. There was no injuries, cuts, abrasions, scratches, bites, on his body, it'd have to be something like a sneeze that would cause him to mop up that area. 
Well, I think you've answered my questions, Headley. No worries, Graham. How does DNA affect the Singh case? As outlined in the last episode, there are over 60 DNA profiles in the Singh murders where Queensland Health found insufficient information for comparison purposes. There were four male DNA profiles identified on the handle and shaft of the garden fork alone, the alleged murder weapon. There was insufficient information in all four profiles for comparison purposes. Max Seeker was ruled out by the partial DNA returned as not being the owner of at least one of those profiles. But because Queensland Health refused to release the test data in relation to the Singh case, we do not know what stages the samples were tested to. In the Blackburn murder, it was found many samples were only tested to stages 1 and 2 instead of all four stages. Is it possible that if the Singh samples were only tested to stages 1 and 2, that profiles may be waiting to be discovered? As I said in the last episode, when you go down these rabbit holes, you just don't know what you may find. Further testing may produce Max Seeker's profile in a place where he could not satisfactorily explain its presence, or it may implicate someone else entirely in the murders. Wouldn't it be interesting if an Asian male profile was returned from DNA? And Max Seeker encouraged further DNA testing to be done, according to his solicitor. This would only become significant to Max Seeker, of course, if he were to ever receive a retrial. And the Queensland Government will do their best to ensure that never happens. We have no idea of where or what DNA will be found until it is tested, if ever. Jeff Johnson is pursuing obtaining the data from Queensland Health. He recently informed me he has again written to Queensland Health requesting the data. He informed them he has instructions from Max Seeker to apply to the Supreme Court for an order forcing Queensland Health to hand over the material. But as a courtesy, he will not go to the Supreme Court for 30 days to allow Queensland Health to cooperate. I'll bring you updates as and when they occur. As well as the outstanding DNA issues, questions have been raised about the actual garden fork. Many questions. Jeff Johnson and I were both left confused over the whole garden fork issue. This was the statement provided by one of the scientific officers in respect of that fork. The garden fork was located behind a large trolley barbecue on a piece of carpet leaning against the wall of the garage. If looking from the road, the fork is located on the left-hand side wall of the left-hand side garage door. In position behind the barbecue, one could approximately see the top of the handle and a partial section of the wooden shaft. The fork was next to other garden implements, a rake, hoe, and a whippersnipper. There was also a pesticide sprayer, a golf buggy, and 9kg gas bottle. Why did it take so long to find it? How could the scenes of crime officers miss it during their intensive and exhaustive search of the crime scene? 
and after viewing the photographs of the garden fork, I am left with more questions. You'll find a photo of the barbecue behind which the fork was found on the Facebook page. I have now added photographs of the garden fork as it was found. There was evidence that a teen was bent whilst working in the garden. The fork teens are not what I would describe as heavily stained with blood. And actually, I expected the entire fork to be bloodstained. Why was there no blood on the shaft of the fork or on the handle? Why was it placed back into its original position? Why was there no blood on the carpet on which it rested? I would have expected to see blood on the tips of the fork, which would have dripped onto the carpet. The garden fork does not appear to have been used in a murder, yet alone a triple murder. The garden fork was very significant for both the Crown and the defence. The discovery of the garden fork behind the barbecue makes it seem very likely Max Seeker was the killer. A random killer would not have known where it was or how to find it. It is possible the killer prowled randomly around the garage looking for a suitable weapon, but he would have to have been supremely confident he would find a suitable weapon. Imagine the scene. A three-car garage with two cars in it. Pitch black. Would the killer turn on the lights and possibly alert the occupants? Was the door from the garage to the house open or closed? A torch, maybe. The entry point to the garage from outside was in the furthest corner from where the fork was located. Past two cars. Past a whole lot of boxed and stacked possessions. And I mean a whole lot of possessions. Next to the front roller door. Behind the barbecue. And the fork was returned to the same position. The dynamics would change, of course, if the night caller was involved in all of this. Whilst Max Seeker went to the trouble of returning the garden fork to its original position, the same cannot be said for the mop which was used to clean the tiled areas on the ground floor. This mop's usual position was also behind the barbecue, along with all the other implements. After being collected from there for its job of cleaning the tiles, the mop was left leaning up against a baby crib just inside the garage door. Why would Max Seeker return the garden fork to its original position, but not the mop? The mop was found by scenes of crime the day after the murders. As outlined in the last episode, the pathologist Alumbi did not favour the garden fork for two out of the three murders. He stated that in both the evidence-in-chief and under cross-examination at the trial. He preferred the long, heavy spatula or the trident for the murders of Canal and City. But in re-examination by the prosecutor, at the end of his evidence, he agreed that it was possible the garden fork was used in all three murders. So really, who knows? I am reminded of what Sam DiCarlo said in episode 14 
when talking about forensic pathologist Alumbi? My opinion is that Alumbi, who I had a good talk to and is a pleasant sort of chap and who is very accommodating, whether it be for me or for the police, in the sense that he's always willing to please. The questions outstanding revolve around the condition of the garden fork when found and the examination of it by Queensland Health. This is what the police scientific officer said in relation to the garden fork when handed to him. These are his words, but not his voice. I examined a Bankshire brand garden fork in the garage. The fork was standing on a piece of carpet. The fork had what appeared to be bloodstains on its two inner teens and the sleeve of the fork ahead. The stains were positive for a presumptive test for blood. The fork and carpet square were packaged separately in plastic bags. At approximately 11.45am on the 5th of May 2003, I took possession of seven samples of the apparent bloodstains on the garden fork. These samples were taken using individual cotton swabs and each swab was packaged separately. The swabs were as follows. Item 26, swab of blood on the front of the fork just above the inner left tin. Item 27, swab of blood on the front of the fork between the two inner tins. Item 28, swab of blood from the front of the inner left tin. Item 29, swab of blood from the front of the inner right tin. Item 30, swab of blood from the right front of the sleeve of the forkhead. Item 31, swab of blood from the back of the inner left tin. And item 32, swab of blood from the back of the inner right tin. This is what the Queensland Health Scientist recorded in relation to the swabs when he examined them in the laboratory. Each of the swabs was either heavily or moderately stained, and each tested positive using the presumptive test for blood, tetramethylbenzidine, TMB. These swabs were submitted for DNA analysis. This is what the scientist recorded when he examined the actual garden fork. To be clear, what you heard above related only to swab samples taken from the garden fork, not the actual implement itself. This item was a wooden garden fork with a label affixed to the handle, detailed in part, Banksia brand garden fork from garage. The garden fork had four prongs, with one outer prong bent towards the midline. Some areas of possible rust were observed on the prongs, which tested negative to presumptive tests for blood. Some areas of blue and brown staining on the prongs tested very weakly positive to the presumptive test for blood, but were not further examined. This is above my pay grade. I am confused that the swabs were heavily or moderately stained, whereas the actual fork was negative to blood or only very weakly positive. Is that even possible? Was the garden fork even the murder weapon? But I do need to address the elephant in the room here. The garden fork was the murder weapon, right? After all, how else did the DNA of all three victims get on it? Once again in this case, 
the evidence does not support the findings. Another loose end. And does the evidence confirm a garden fork type implement was used in the murders? Well, the pathologist said so, sort of. At least one Queensland police scientific officer who attended the scene was an authorised bloodstain pattern interpreter. This officer examined the entire Singh house. He found evidence of blood splatter in all three rooms where the murders occurred and on the wall near the staircase, but not a lot of splatter. Literally one drop of blood here, one drop of blood there. I would have expected to see blood splatter on the walls and ceilings from swinging the murder weapon in an upward and downward arc, especially if it was a multi-pronged instrument such as the garden fork. But such splatters were not present. This is what the scientific officer wrote about the splatter near the staircase. You will recall it was believed Nilma was carried upstairs in a doona after being strangled on the ground floor. The officer made no mention at all of the blood found at the base of the stairs, nor the blood on the railing at the midpoint of the staircase. After describing the blood splatter, he then goes on to explain what the terms freefall and cast-off mean in reference to blood pattern analysis. Stain A5 is indicative of either a free-falling or projected blood drop. Stain A10 is indicative of a cast-off projected diluted blood stain. The indicative cast-off projected blood stains observed on the wall A10 suggest the application of force to a source of diluted liquid blood. An explanation of free-falling blood drops is... Pattern formed when blood is allowed to form a drop and fall as a result of gravity. An explanation of cast-off pattern, a blood-stain pattern created when blood is released or thrown from a blood-bearing object. That's it for DNA Matters. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. Please join me in episode 17, Impressions Count where I speak to a member of Bonn University on their research into the footprint impressions found in the crime scene. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.